Uh, stories and narratives are like a universal language to human beings. There's a reason why the Bible is 76% narrative and poetry. Uh, the scriptures paint these vivid pictures and tell these compelling stories to engage and challenge God's creatures. And sometimes these stories invoke these feelings of wonder and these feelings of awe. And other times you get a feeling of disgust and sometimes even fear. The stories are very diverse within the scriptures. In fact, if you remember just the book of Genesis, some weeks we were, you know, feeling the joy of what the characters were feeling at the time. And other times we were walking out of there thinking, what on earth just happened? The Bible tells stories, not merely because that's the best way we learn. The Bible tells stories because everything is story. We love stories because the entire universe is built to tell a story. And the one true story that all other stories derive their meaning from. The whole Bible is like this. The major festivals of Old Testament Israel were, for instance, the Feast of Passover. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, celebrating their rescue from Egypt. As they were celebrating these festivals, they were telling a story. When they camped in tents in the festival, the Feast of Booths, they were commemorating their time wandering in the wilderness. In fact, every single one of their festivals was telling a story. And God has set the entire national identity of Israel around the story of God's salvation. And it is true for us too. Even in our very lives, every single one of us lives separate stories. Have you ever kind of walked down the street and it's kind of packed like the times you go to Sydney and you're just kind of overwhelmed by the amount of people that live there? And then if you've ever tried to have another thought experiment that usually overwhelms you is thinking that every single one of those people is the protagonist in their own little story, just like you. And yet God, in his infinite glory, weaves all these individual stories so tightly together as to tell one big story where, thankfully, we are not the protagonist, but a supporting cast to the one to whom all will bow. One of my favorite theologians is this guy named Doug Wilson, and he has his grandchildren go through rounds of catechisms every Sunday night when they come over for dinner. And the last question he asks is this, kids, what is the point of the whole Bible? And if you know anything about catechisms, catechisms have a set answer and they answer the question this way. They say, kill the dragon, get the girl. That is the point of the whole Bible. And this cute answer is actually, the more you think about it, more accurate than you think at first glance. It actually does capture the Bible story really well. Think about it. The whole task that Adam was given in the garden, even before the fall, before sin has entered in, his task was to kill the dragon and get the girl. That was his task, which he, we all know, he failed miserably at. And this task, since, him, since he has failed, has become treacherous and it has stretched out across millennia. And yet God gave us a promise, didn't he, in Genesis 3.15, that the head of the serpent would be crushed under the, the feet of this woman's seed. And this slippery, cunning dragon, the greatest of all villains, will be killed. And Jesus would have his bride, the church. Really, the whole story of the Bible is to kill the dragon and get the girl. And today in our passage, Peter is going to be reminding us of where we sit in God's great plan. He reminded us already that we are not forsaken as exiles, having our story written in some other book, but not the real book. Nor are we abandoned in our trials to failure and defeat. God's people are given a grace and a story 
that causes all of heaven to stand in wonder and awe. And I'm not overstating it, and I'll show you why. I have three points for my sermon. Number one, God has a plan for history. Number two, God's plan is for the whole of history. And number three, God's plan transforms history. So let's dive into it. Number one, God has a plan for history. First Peter chapter one, we're going to be reading verses 10 to 11 to, to get us going. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, last week we saw that our story, our storyline is not one of misery and defeat, but one of joy and glory in the midst of trial. While the world seeks glory and honor and praise from men, the Christian is in the business of seeking the only glory that comes from God. We remember last week that the Christian wants nothing more than to hear from their heavenly father, Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And for us who love the Lord Jesus, really that is all the reward we can possibly want is the approval of our Lord. And Peter says that this salvation, this salvation that he was, he's referring to is foretold by the prophets. Now, the first question that comes to mind is this. Who are these prophets and what exactly were they speaking about? Are these prophets he's referring to are the Old Testament prophets, men like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Moses, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to do or to say extraordinary things. Uh, through the Holy Spirit, they proclaimed the very words of God to the people, writing down in their various, uh, their various prophecies in the scrolls or books of the Old Testament. And their most important duty through all of that was to foretell the salvation that was to come in Christ. That was their most solemn, their most impressive duty, and one that they faithfully filled, uh, fulfilled. And this salvation, this grace, Peter says, was to be yours. Well, who's the yours? The audience that Peter is writing to, the churches in Bithynia and Cappadocia and Pontus. Now, this must have felt surreal to these Jewish men and women in the dispersion. Remember, they are exiles, they are suffering, they are uncertain about the future. And yet these good Jewish boys and Jewish girls grew up in the synagogue every Saturday. As they walked along, scrolls were opened, and there they heard the tale of their prophets, tales such as the prophet Jeremiah, tales such as the prophet Daniel. And they grew up hearing these men, their heroes, since they were little tiny children. And here Peter says something amazing to them. They were writing... For you. Imagine that. They were writing for you. And Peter says that these prophets searched, they inquired carefully. Uh, the Greek emphasizes the fervor to which they looked into these matters. It's like a miner diligently breaking up the ground, trying to find gems, gold, precious stones. And so also do the prophets pour over the writings in the Old Testament, even going through their own prophecies, looking through the very words that God had given to them. And Jesus says as much in Matthew 13, 17, speaking to the people at the time, Jesus says this to them, For truly I say to you, 
Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Think about that. All these prophets, these righteous people, despite their privileged connection to God and their great wisdom and skill, none of them ever found out in their lifetime when Christ would come or who he would be. The irony is that the Jews were waiting for the fulfillment of these prophecies and as Jesus was speaking to them, they could not see right in front of them that it had come. And they had stumbled. And what were they stumbling over? Well, really the phrase that we see here in 1 Peter, the sufferings of Christ. Now, it would have sounded crazy to most ancient ears. To the ancient world, victory does not come at the, being defeated at the hands of your enemies. That's pretty common, right? You don't win a football game by losing the game. It just doesn't work like that. And so when Jesus comes and says, I am going to die, that it is God's will for me to be crushed, it was hard for people to deal with. Uh, this expectation of Crushing your enemies was so ingrained in both Israel and in Rome that the idea of a Messiah suffering at the hands of the enemy was insane. It just simply could not be true. That's not how stories are supposed to go. Yet the prophets predicted that the Messiah would suffer, but the Messiah would receive this interesting phrase we see here in 1 Peter, subsequent glories, or literally in Greek, the afterglories. Kind of sounds like the afterglow. And this shouldn't have been a shock to a first century Jew, for the prophets knew that God's plan required his servant to suffer. It's really all through the Bible. And when you start to see it, it's, it's everywhere. This idea of suffering preceding glory. Uh, from the very first prophecy of the Messiah, the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. But what does the serpent do in that process? Strikes his heel. Like when you're walking in the bush and out of the grass comes a snake and gets you right on the heel. Most people, that's a death sentence. Unless you can get the antidote and rush to the hospital, but most of history, that doesn't, didn't happen. If you got bit on the heel by a snake, you're dead. In the process of crushing that serpent's head, the Messiah would die. I mean, have a look at the words of the prophet Isaiah 52, 13 and 15. Have a listen to this. Listen how... Glory and suffering are intertwined. Um, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. See, when Peter's writing this, passages like this is what he has in mind. And I actually had like four or five of these passages, but I was like, ah, I just don't want to overload you guys with all of them, but I can give them to you later if you want. The suffering servant is crushed. He is defeated. It says here that he's marred beyond human semblance, and yet paradoxically, that is the way that the Messiah will sprinkle many nations. That is the very way that kings' mouths will be shut and that they will understand the truth. The ancient world didn't understand that the suffering of Christ would crush his enemies, that he would place kings and nations under his feet, not through the end of the sword, but through the preaching of a message. I mean, 
I love this language in Romans 16.20. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks here. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Usually peace and crushing people don't usually go in the same sentence, do they? I mean, the, the ancients, in a sense, they did get something right, and that is God would crush his enemies under his feet. And really, that's what this phrase, subsequent glories, means. It's through the suffering of Christ that people get brought underneath the rule and reign of Christ. This subsequent glories, it's the, uh, it's the language you would use after you lead a, a, a war, a campaign, and you defeat the enemy in battle, and you capture all of them, you bring them, uh, and they're prisoners of war, and you march them through the town, like this big parade. That's what the Romans used to do. They'd have a big parade as the army would walk through the city center, and at the, behind them were all the prisoners of war, the fearsome barbarians, chained up, made a mockery of, and at the back of the parade was the king who they defeated in battle. That's that kind of language. And this language of a victor parading his enemies through the streets is used by Paul in Colossians 2.15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. I can't get more explicit than that, the language of the Bible. Jesus is going to crush the dragon. He has already struck a fatal blow and his enemy is routed. They are put to open shame. But while that slippery serpent still slithers across the earth, the story is not done. We're still in it. The story is still going and it continues with us. And that's my second point. God's plan is for the whole of history. Have a look, verse 12. We're just going to read the first part of it. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, that's the prophets, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. The first thing I want you to notice from this is that God has a plan that spans generations, doesn't he? Think about how long it took in the flow of biblical history to end up from Adam to the church here, the churches here in Bithynia and Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia, His plan spanned generations and peoples and nations. And this is hard for us to understand. In fact, we're probably one of the the audiences that you could pick out of all history that would probably understand this the least. We are not a people who are connected to our history anymore. Most of us, I'll be impressed if you know the name of your great-grandparents. I'll be very impressed with that. I have to put my hand up and say, I don't know their names. I've even met some of them. (laughs) They were alive when I was around. So quickly is our history gone, our stories lost, and our people forgotten. We are disconnected from our past, and we are disengaged from our future. And it fills a lot of people with existential dread, thinking, man, I don't even know my great-grandparents' name. That means my great-grandchildren won't know me. But it was not always the case. Many cultures would have high respect for those that went before, and they would see themselves in a flow of a story. And I would say that we need to recapture that. And we need to see ourselves as part of a story, not because we're imposing a story on reality, but because we actually are a part of a story. 
Whether we forget those who have come before or not, we are, we are in a big flow of history. Uh, praise be to God that He does not forget history, that His plan is multi-generational, multinational, and universal. He will bring all things underneath His feet. I mean, just look at the prophets here. They were serving a generation that was yet to be born, and they didn't even find that out straight away. And they knew that they would never live to see the glories of the Christ. And yet they were not lazy, were they? They continued to proclaim this grace despite many sufferings and trials. They did not grow weary in their zeal. Nor did they sook about how unfair it was that the future generations would enjoy the fruit of their labors while everyone they know and loved were going to get sent off into exile. That wasn't their attitude. As the old Greek proverbs proverb goes, a society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they know they shall never sit. If their patience was so great in their service of us, how ungrateful would we be if our courage faltered and our faith crumbled under all the trials we must endure when we have been given so much grace? Think for a second just how amazing the treasure trove of grace just the churches in 1 Peter have. They have the message of the gospel that has come to them. The Holy Spirit has impressed the truth of the gospel upon their hearts. They've been transformed. They have all the Old Testament, which is now just, uh, they just see the truth in Christ on every single page. And yet, remind yourself, they very much likely do not have any of the four gospels. They may have been lucky enough to have Mark, but they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They had 1 Peter, they're reading it right now, but they didn't have most of the epistles. They didn't have Acts or Revelation, or maybe a few of them had like the letter to Galatians. But think about it. Think about us. Not only do we have all of the New Testament and all of the Old Testament right here before us in plain English, but we also have all the commentaries and wealth of theology passed down by the giants of the faith from the early church fathers to the Reformation until now. We have the writings of incredibly gifted men, and I'm just so blown away at the grace we have been given, for we have been given grace. And yet, it sometimes goes that the more we have, the more complacent we get, and the more we come to expect it. And then when I think about it a little bit more, I honestly, I start to tremble, because... I'm reminded of things like Luke 12, 48, where Jesus says this, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The weight of everyone behind us in this story, this great cloud of witnesses that have served both their generation and us, that weight pushes us forward to move the ball one tackle further to the try line, right? We have a great task ahead of us. Will we fumble the ball? Will we give it to the other side? Will we lose ground? Or will we take this great task of discipling the nations and will we push it forward? Will we be the members of the story that created the problem? Or will we be the ones who triumphed? How are we going preparing ourselves for this task? Is the great wealth that we have in front of us, has that kind of blinded us into complacency or has that lit a fire underneath us? 
Have we prepared ourselves for this task? Have we prepared our children for this task? C.S. Lewis says something quite, quite amazing. I've got it up here. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. Now, I want to be controversial here, and I actually disagree with Lewis. I don't think it's just children who need these stories. I think we all need them. We need stories both of heroic saints of old, but the valiant knights of Christian writers. We need to hear about the brave knights who are slaying the dragon and getting the girl. We need to get back into books and be people of stories. We need to learn to love history again and to see ourselves in a great flow of narrative. And these things are powerful. You guys know my son Calvin. He's a boisterous little dude. We all love him. He will sit still and read books. And sometimes he'll bring you the same book over and over and over again. I'll say, Calvin, go get me another book. And he'll run off. He'll look at all these books, come back and give me the same book that I just read to him. And it's like the fourth time I've just read it to him. And I'm like, come on, man, pick another book. But he, he can't even read. He only knows like 20 words. And yet he loves stories because he's a human and we were made for it. Have a listen to this uh, Facebook post by this author, Rachel Jankovich. She was going to protest that Planned Parenthood, which is one of America's largest abortion providers. And she was bringing a whole family there. And this is what she wrote. She said, as our kids were getting ready to go, finding their productive conception shirts, grabbing water bottles, etc., Shadrach realized he didn't have a protest shirt. This is because I made him one that said hashtag another boy on it for the last protest, but threw it away afterwards because I was, it was an old undershirt. So I grabbed some Sharpies and I said that I would make him a new one on another old undershirt. He watched me as I wrote, life is a good choice on his shirt. And we talked about what was going on. I told him that there were people who thought it was okay to kill babies while they were in their mama's tummy. I told him that we were going to say no. He asked me some insightful three-year-old questions. There are people killing babies? Is God there? People are killing babies? They is killing babies. You can hear the incredulity on his voice. Later, thinking he had gotten in the van already, I found him in the garage rummaging around and I asked him what he was up to. And he said, Mama, I need to find my sword. I think we have a lot to learn from the bravery of this little brother, don't we? God's story for humanity is not an abstract idea. It's not intangible and it's not vague. It's here and it's being told right now. Will it tell the story of complacent people who let it all fall into ruin? Or will it tell a story of a heroic church that fought hard? and did not give up, that did not let Australia go, did not let it fall into the, into the mire and the pit, but we proclaim the truth of Christ. Because this story is being told right now in the lives of ordinary people like us. People like you and me. And if we do do it, we recognize, number three, that God's plan transforms history. Let's finish this last verse. Verse 12. 
We'll start again from verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, the work of the gospel is demonstrated here, he says, in the hearts of men and women transformed by the Holy Spirit. As the work of God becomes manifest in whole households, bending the knee to the rule and reign of Christ, being reborn by the Spirit into the image of Christ. And did you know that at the end of this passage, we have a very eager audience. There is a crowd that are longing to look into what happens. The angels. Matthew Henry says this. He says, the mysteries of the gospel and the methods of man's salvations are so glorious that the blessed angels earnestly desire to look into them. They are curious, accurate and industrious in prying into them. They consider the whole scheme of man's redemption with deep attention and admiration. The gospel is simply more than a message of how someone gets saved, which it is, and it is a beautiful thing when someone does. But it is more about how the gospel brings all things under the feet of Christ. Calvin says this, not my son, the John Calvin. The angels anxiously desire to see the kingdom of Christ, the living image of which is set forth in the gospel. The angels want to see Christ's kingdom come to earth. They want to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They love watching the greater story, being told by the master storyteller, so intricate in detail and so mind-blowing in scale that the angels can't get enough of it. They eagerly look to see where the Holy Spirit is at work, renewing men and women, families, communities, cities and nations, whole areas bringing everything into accordance with Christ by the indwelling Spirit. And this work starts, as it always does, with an individual. And it moves to families, to communities and then to nations. And Peter here is encouraging the church that all your toil, your strife, your sacrifices, your ingenuity, all of that is not in vain. You are building something amazing. You are part of a great work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, listen to how he encourages the church in Corinth. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, we've been left with this great task. And press this upon your children if you have kids. Kill the dragon, get the girl. When you read the Bible, show them how this is the point. There are serpents who you need to train your child to stomp. Some heads need to be crushed. And saints need to be brought into the bride of Christ. There will be suffering for you and for your kids if you choose to enter into this battle. But yet every gram of suffering you put in, you will receive a kilogram of glory. Paul reminds us here, the things that we are doing are not unimportant. There is this heavenly host Peter talks about longing to look into the story that God is telling, and He is telling the story here right now. And are we going to make the Christian life a simple formula of pray, read your Bible, go to church? 
Because that is like basic first-rung ladder of Christianity. And if we make the basic first-rung ladder of Christianity the point of Christianity, then we are missing the whole point, and we are missing the story, and we are missing the task that we have for us right in front of us. These necessary foundations are like basic training to help us become potent soldiers in the hands of God. If you were to be drafted and to go off to war, they don't just slap a rifle on you and send you off into the trenches. They put you through a boot camp, a basic training. In a way, we come together and we go through basic training and we read and we pray and we meet together as a church, but we go out and we fight. So brothers and sisters, will, what, will the, what will your story be? How many good stories have you ever read that you loved that story, you opened it up, and when things got hard, the main character threw in the towel, and that was the end of the story? Was that a good story? Would you read it again? I doubt it would sell any copies, right? What a travesty when that is the life of the Christian, when things got hard and they threw in the towel, and that was the end of their story. They took that bullseye off their back. Satan didn't care about them anymore. They lived a quiet life. They weren't bothered. That's not usually the tale. Right? Even if you try to throw in the towel, it might not work. But if you fight and you decide that, no, my story, my life will matter for more and that I will fight for this kingdom, and I will be a part of this tale, well, then you will begin to understand what Peter's saying here. You'll begin to understand the, uh, the way that he's encouraging this church to get back in, because they are rattled by their suffering, and they are struggling. And look at the triumphant language in Peter, the joy that drips off every page, the glory inexpressible, the love we have for Jesus. That's what we want for our church. That's what we want for our lives. Will we announce the message of the gospel? Will we disciple the nations? Will we teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us? Or will we exit stage right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the greatest storyteller. And Lord, you weave together stories of very unique and different men and women to tell one grand narrative across all time. And we thank you, Lord, for the little part we get to play here in the hunter. If wherever these men and women go, I pray that they would move the ball forward, that they would not give in, they would not see suffering as something that will put an end to their Christian life, but something that will fuel it to more and more joy and glory. Pray, Lord, that they would seek the only glory that comes from you, that they would learn to love the suffering that comes at the expense of following you. And through this, Lord, would we win the hunter? Would we win the country? And Lord, we know indeed we will win the world through the triumphing of your son Jesus and his bride. Help us to crush the serpents in our own heart and in our families, in our communities, in our lives. And Lord, would we bring those who are lost into the church's fold? And we know on that day, Lord, you will present the church blameless, holy, beautiful before you when we stand and see her in all her beauty and wonder at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
We thank you, Lord, for this amazing story. Would we be a part of it? In Jesus' name, amen.